This is Chicken and Dreams, and I'm Amar. Thank you for choosing this podcast for your entertainment. This is a series about me reaching out to my friends who I haven't seen in some time and ask them how COVID-19 is affecting them. Since the emergence of the virus in late 2019, we have seen Ground Zero switch from Wuhan, China to New York City. Today, April 12th, Governor of New York announced that over 758 people have died in the past 24 hours. We have also seen individuals with mental health issues suffer even more with social distancing, self-isolating, or in quarantine measures. To help me guide through all of this is my good friend Omar Sharif, who is a psychiatrist in New York. Omar, thank you for coming on. How are you? It's a pleasure, man. Omar, thank you for having me on Chicken and Dreams. I want to let you know that um, when it comes to my diet, Uh, you are the chicken in my dreams. <laughs> <laughs> so, Omar, when did COVID nineteen become real for you? Oh man, um, I mean, it's for us in New York. We we were one of the hardest hit in in the United States, and um, I know that for me, this was probably I'd say like two months ago is when we got our first warnings. That you know we have cases here in New York, and my biggest fear was um, that New York is so densely populated, and we have so many um, like low-income areas and um, immigrant areas mm-hmm. um, and people who don't exactly keep up with uh, you know public health announcements and all this stuff. So I had a feeling that it would get bad here. Um, and then I didn't expect it to get this bad, though. I didn't think we'd become the new epicenter around the world. That I didn't expect. But um, yeah, it's, it, it hit really hard here. There isn't a single person that I know of here in New York, amongst my friends, who hasn't had a family member sick uh, or hospitalized. So, what's the ground situation like? I've been hearing reports about how uh, EMS services are around the clock, running every day, every single hour. We have seen the streets pretty much empty. So, what's it like being there? It's kind of eerie. Just went to Times Square um, just to take photos. I'm not going to comment about going out to Times Square at this time, but uh, he went out and took photos, and it's completely empty. It's like something out of like The Walking Dead. You have this this uh, area of New York that is always known for being packed with tourists and not having a single place to walk or move, and now it's completely abandoned. It's empty. You have all these bright flashing ads playing for no one. Uh, there are no taxis around. There's no like honking. All the noise of the city sort of gone. It's it's very creepy. Um, the the grand situation here is that. Uh, New York uh, has a very, very strict enforcement of the lockdown, uh, given how severe uh, the impact is here. And I know most people are, are doing well adhering to it. Uh, the flattening the curve has started to show its effect. Um, we're seeing, you know, hospitalizations uh, slowly taper off uh, at this point. So it's, you know, it looks promising, but promising doesn't necessarily mean that this is going to end soon. Um, aside from that, I'm I'm really grateful for all the extra support that we're getting. I know Governor Cuomo has been like nationally recognized for being on top of his game when it comes to handling the crisis. You know, so I do want to give props to him for doing such a good job. Um, but aside from that, I can tell you just from being here in the hospital, um, the hospitals here are overwhelmed. 
Um, there's a ton of patients coming in. There's not enough doctors to man the front lines. So they're pulling doctors from other specialties to the front line, myself included. Um, I'm working on the front line and uh, it's weird to have, you know, a bunch of surgeons and psychiatrists working as, you know, frontline doctors, but that's the reality here that we have. And have you been trained uh, to deal with COVID-19 patients, uh, saying how this is not your area of expertise? The truth is no. Um, you know, infectious disease is not my specialty, but all of us that got pulled to the front line have been through medical school. We do have like a rudimentary understanding, at least of the basics <clears throat> of what to look for. I don't know how to operate a ventilator. Um, I know the gist of it, but I don't know how to actually like, you know, use one or maintain one. Um, there are certain procedures that I've never done, like intubating a patient. I have never done that. Um, so if I'm asked to do that, this is not the time to be practicing in these kind of patients. So I am for sure uncomfortable with a bunch of procedures and there's no way to like learn these procedures now. Um, you know, the only way to do it is to train yourself and I have not been trained. Um, so I'm going to do the best I can in my own capacity, but I know my limitations as a psychiatrist. And overall, how are you coping with all these sudden changes? Truthfully, I, I think the, the, the emotion that I have, the overwhelming emotion I have is frustration, I think is the emotion I would, I would go with. It is heartbreaking, for sure, absolutely, seeing so much pain and suffering. But, but what I am seeing, at least here in New York, is the, the pandemic has stripped bare a lot of these structural weaknesses that we have. Um, it sort of has uh, how broke healthcare system is, how many holes we have in our, our access uh, to healthcare, how many financial pitfalls there are, how exposed and vulnerable um, healthcare staff are. All in all, I think this is, if anything, if not an indictment of uh, the for-profit system. For your listeners up in Canada, I know that for you guys, it's, it's a very different perspective that you have when it comes to healthcare um, down here in the United States. For you guys as Canadians, it's it's like beyond comprehension that someone can call an ambulance and that would cost you like six, seven thousand dollars to do that. Um, or a simple ER visit can land you in like tens of thousands of dollars in medical debt. It's like unheard of. But here it's it's normal. It's the norm. So we've heard scary stories here in New York of of patients being told that you're gonna have to be ventilated. And the first question is not, Am I gonna survive? The first question they ask is how much will it cost or how much will it cost me for this procedure? And that's the heartbreaking part where, where decisions on life or death are made because of money and, and finances. Um, but it's the reality here. And I think if anything, the coronavirus really has shown, this is going to be a harsh word, but I think it sort of applies. Medical, like medical apartheid, I think was what I call it, where, where you have like rich upper class Americans who are able to afford, you know, testing even when they're asymptomatic and are able to get treatment wherever they want however they want with the best quality and then you have poorer americans who just can't afford it who don't have the access don't have the means can't get testing and are suffering and this is what we're sort of seeing um over here so that's that's my emotion it's it's this feeling of just frustration at the system that i'm that i'm part of and working in and, and frustration towards this feeling of like just being a cog in a machine and not being able to affect the system on a larger scale yeah, man, it can. It sounds like it's it's a really rough time right now for all medical professionals and yeah. even essential workers right now in New York. 
Yeah. And you touched upon a lot of things that I'm going to be talking about. So mm-hmm. you mentioned about the medical apartheid. Mm-hmm. Why is that kind of why New York has been badly affected versus the rest of the country? I, I can't say for sure. Um, epidemiology and, and public health is not my particular specialty, but what I can comment on is that there are for sure guaranteed major health disparities between low-income areas and uh, high-income areas. I, I, when I worked at uh, Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center in Harlem, this was years ago, we were doing research on cancer rates in New York, and I brought uh, where the highest uh, rates of cancer diagnoses were, and what we found was that there were areas of New York that are low income and areas of New York that are high income. And the low income areas of New York, uh, according to city planning, this would be where the city would plan a bunch of factories, bus depots, uh, industry. And in my research, that the highest uh, would be in these low income areas of like Harlem, the Bronx, Brooklyn, parts of Brooklyn and Queens. And then the high uh, income areas, affluent areas of New York, they would avoid all these uh, pollutants. So what we would find is that there are higher rates of lung cancer, asthma in these low income areas. And I'm thinking to myself, when you put two and two together, when you have a viral outbreak that affects the respiratory system, it's going to adversely affect uh, low income African and Hispanic communities because they don't have access to regular care. Areas that they live in where there's a high pollution rate, high exposure, and, and it's they, there's not enough income uh, in their community to even have proper public health systems in place for themselves uh and they're underserved medically underserved so this is like a recipe for disaster it's like a perfect storm of these communities that are not able to seek help and can't afford help getting hit with this virus and not being able to handle it so i think there's research i can't remember i'm gonna cite it but i know that the research is citing that uh, majority of the the infections and deaths that we're seeing in new york city are adversely affecting people of color. And this is what I mean by like medical apartheid. You're, you're seeing two, two New Yorks are what you're seeing. You know, the rich affluent New York and then this down and dirty New York and how the virus is affecting both. Yes, a lot of points that you mentioned was also brought up by the uh, Surgeon General where he's explaining that mm-hmm. African-Americans have higher incidences of coronavirus just because of pre-existing health mm-hmm. conditions. And right now, yeah. reports are coming in from... New York Times is specifically about how the city had advanced warning of the threat of coronavirus back in January and February. And activists are saying that the governor and the mayor of New York uh, sat on their hands without planning for the further threat. What's your take from the response? I mean, this is this is part of, I guess, the, the overall feeling of frustration, um, you know, as a frontline doctor here in New York, which is, this is something that is, is entirely preventable. You know, and a lot of people liken it to like, oh, you're going to war. We use a lot of wartime um, vocabulary for this, such as uh, you're being deployed as a doctor to the front line. We're waging a war against coronavirus. Trump is a wartime president. Like there's a lot of military terminology being used. Um, and and this is where the whole hero aspect comes into play that, oh, you, your healthcare workers are heroes. You guys are wearing capes. Um, you know, you guys should be like, you know, cheered and saluted for and given all these benefits and stuff the same way a soldier would be like, you know, thank you for your service, respect the vets. Uh, we're sort of seeing a very similar treatment uh, for us. And I always see it as this is not what war is like. This is not 
I don't feel like I'm a soldier. Um, you know, this, this, this is a duty that I'm performing, of course, but I don't, I think it's a, it, it's not an accurate comparison. I don't think this is war. I don't think this is because war is something that you feel is uh, necessary. It's justified. Nothing about this pandemic is justified, uh, at least here in America. Uh, I sort of see it more akin to being a firefighter at Chernobyl is what I see it as that this was something that was entirely preventable with proper oversight uh, and proper preparation. And this is a disaster that we're responding to. Uh, that's what I think this is more like. We are disaster first responders. We are not soldiers entering into a war. Um, and I don't need a pat on the back or, or a thank you for your service or putting a caper on me. I need a mask. I need proper equipment. I need protection. This is what I need. Um, you know, so I, I appreciate the people saying thank you for your service and thank you for all this stuff. But it's, truthfully, it's entirely preventable. My colleagues, like, you know, my staff members in my hospital do not need to die over this, but they are. Um, all these patients that we have here who are suffering did not need to suffer. None of this needed to happen, um, you know, with proper protocols in place, uh, with proper preventative strategies, which we knew from the H1N1 outbreak and the Ebola outbreak, swine flu, um, avian bird flu, everything we've had. This is not something new dealing with a pandemic. We've done this before and we've done it well before. So it, it boggles my mind as to how you can bungle um, a response like this. I, I, I cannot point a finger at New York leadership without extending that finger to federal government. Um, and, and I feel like this is a condemnation of uh, President Trump's response because I feel like you the best way to explain it to to Canadians is sort of like um, if Trudeau had done nothing and not even nothing if Trudeau had actually worked against the narrative that this is happening and then you basically said every province for itself and the provinces now have to fight each other and bid for resources against each other that's an accurate way of pointing out how, how it is in the United States, where the federal government is actually uh, hindering the process and every state has to fight every other state in order to get resources. Uh, that's more accurate to what's going on. I, I don't know if I would completely point the finger at New York and say, you guys should have known better. I, I really need to point my finger at the federal government um, for failing to adequately respond and not just you know failing to respond, but actively working against um, proper preparation uh, in time. So yeah, that's, there's a lot of, I don't know, it's just a lot of frustration against the, the government, the healthcare system, you know, wealth inequality, uh, you know, access to healthcare, everything that's, it's, I'm looking around me and just, it's exposed every vulnerability in our system, laid it bare what it is. Um, and that's what we're seeing. And we have seen a large demand for PPE. Last episode, I spoke to a doctor in Florida, and now they're saying they're they're rationing out masks. How's your hospital facing with such shortages? Pretty much the same. Pretty much the same. So we are um, allotted one mask per week. So I'm given a you know single mask, and I've got to use it. And the mask is not an N95 mask, which is the most effective mask against uh, the virus. We're given a basic surgical mask. Uh, which is not as effective and does leave you vulnerable, but that's all you've got. And normally when we use PPE, uh, this is pre-pandemic, 
um, PP would be like you'd wear a disposable gown, you'd wear gloves, you'd have a mask, you'd have a shield, you'd walk in to see a patient, um, you know, you complete your examination or your procedure or what have you, whatever it is you're doing. And then as soon as you step out of um, the room, you rip the PPE off. There's a, there's a procedure we have for removing PPE and then you dispose of it. Uh, and then we wash our hands uh, and then move on. And then you, you get an entirely new set of PPE for the next patient that you see. Um, and this is what we do. And what we're seeing now is there's a rationing of PPE. So I'm given a mask on Monday and my department tells me that you need to keep this mask for the rest of the week. If you lose it, you're on your own. Um, you need to procure your own PPE if that happens. Um, and the hospital that we have has like this supply of PPE and they constantly shift the supply around to different departments of the hospital because sometimes one department will need it more than the other department or one floor needs it and the other floor doesn't. Um, and we're sort of running around the hospital checking different stockpiles to see what we can find and what we can get for ourselves. It's very weird. Um, you know, this isn't something that's usual for us. For myself, you know, I, I want to thank a lot of my friends um, and a lot of the organizations here that I'm in, like, trying to procure PPE for us. But then it begs the question of why, why is it that our healthcare industry needs GoFundMes and random people running around stockpiling their own PPE to give to doctors? Why is this necessary to begin with? Um, it just boggles my mind um, that my health and my safety as a physician and my patient's health and safety is at the whim of whether or not I'm able to procure or have friends or have connections that get me um, PPE or not. It's, it just strikes me as very uh, uh, absurd that we need to do that, that regular people have to now scrounge for PPE to donate to hospitals um, when the reality should be that we should be well stockpiled to begin with. There should have been a stockpiling of resources way back in like January. Um, but it is what it is now. You know, I'm, I have what I have. I have like two gowns on me and I have like four masks and I got to make that last for myself. So I'm going to do my best to ration it. And you spoke about how the hospital has responded to COVID-19. Can you give me any further mm -hmm. insights into what, what your hospital specifically has done? And you can, if you can speak to your experiences treating patients. Sure. So, um, my hospital is a county hospital. So a county hospital is like a government hospital that I work at. And um, as a government hospital, um, we see patients that are underinsured or uninsured or undocumented. Uh, so we see everybody. Um, whereas other hospitals can turn people away if they don't have insurance or they don't have the right insurance or there's not proper coverage. Our hospital cannot. So we see anyone and everyone. Um, and this has led to us being overwhelmed and overloaded uh, with patients. The past couple of weeks have been particularly bad um, at our hospital. Uh, we've set up uh, a bunch of tents outside the hospital. These are like pre-screening areas where as soon as anyone walks in, uh, they're immediately their temperature is taken and their symptoms are assessed before they're even let into the hospital. Um, so every entrance now has that. Uh, staff members have their own specific entrance where they test our temperature as well. Uh, when we come in, we have mandatory masking. You have to wear a mask at all times when you're inside the hospital. You cannot take it off um, at any point. And we have actually, and me as a psychiatrist, I can tell you that we have cleared out um, 
over half of our psych floors. So we have a detox and rehab floor for chemical addiction, and we completely cleared the floor out, discharged all those patients, and converted that floor into a corona floor. We have an inpatient psych unit for severely mentally ill, and we discharged all of them, or we transferred all of them, cleared the entire floor out, and converted it uh, into a corona floor. So all of the psychiatric services, the mental health services, have been uh, dramatically reduced, um, and we're like streamlining everything towards um, infectious disease treatment. Um, it's it's I've never seen something like this before. It's actually it's it's a very dramatic. Um, you know, response, but the hospital has to do what it has to do what it needs to do uh, in order to meet the demand of all the patients we have and make sure there's adequate beds um, available for the patients themselves. Um, what we're seeing is uh, a lot of them are coming in with the alarm symptoms that you're talking about, and we tend to, um, you know, gown up in the morning, and then we make our morning rounds. We check on all our patients. We walk in the room and ask them how they're doing, how they're holding up, how things are. Um, we try to minimize our contact with the patient uh, in order to protect the patient and protect ourselves. But what this means is that that poor patient who's COVID positive is languishing in that room for hours without actual any contact. Normally, when a patient is uh, admitted to a medical ward, there's a lot of staff members that check on them. You know, doctors come in, we come talk to them. Nursing staff comes in, they check them, they peek at them, they ask them how they're doing, how they're holding up. Sometimes texts come in. Med students come in. There's a lot of folks interfacing with the patient. But now it's like only see the patient if you absolutely have to. Uh, otherwise, don't you know put yourself at risk and put the patient at risk. And, and it's heartbreaking because these poor patients who are corona positive um, are alone in their room in isolation. And they can't be seen by their family members. There's no visitors coming in to see them. There's no staff members coming in to see them. There's nobody there. Uh, except for just a few times during the day where someone just pokes their head in and checks on them to make sure that their oxygen saturation is where it should be or that their the ventilator settings are where they're at or, um, you know, that they're not decompensating or crashing in any way. Um, that's it. It's, it's as, as a patient, if I were switched positions with them, it would be heartbreaking. It really would. You, you would. you would feel isolated, alone. It would feel more like a prison than it would feel like a hospital. Um, you know, and, and, and my heart goes out to all the Corona patients that we have, uh, this is not easy at all to deal with and the lack of social, you know, connection when you're infected, not being able to see your family or, uh, connect with them that it just makes your condition that much worse. So that's, that's what we're seeing on our end. Oh my gosh. This is such a depressing episode, Amar. <laughs> if anyone's listening to this. I can't imagine them walking away from this episode going like, yeah, you know what? I feel good. Nope. I'm ready to start my day. I, I hear that, but I think it's really important just to get your experiences out there. Interesting to see how few years from now in the road is like how we can look back and see what steps that we do. Cause you know, Toronto went through the same process back in 2003 with the SARS epidemic. Mm -hmm. Right. And, Mm -hmm. And now we found out we weren't really, really prepared, even all that lessons that we learned. And it's in interesting that you mentioned about 
how a current patient might feel like they're in prison. Uh, a lot of people mm-hmm. I'm speaking to right now is like, oh, I'm self-isolating. It feels like I'm back in prison. But we know that individuals in prison right now and in jails are probably having a lot more uh, issues on their mind right now because of how close everyone is in prison and very little opportunities to get tested and stuff like that. Yes. Uh, so I actually am treating a few prison patients that I have. And, and our hospital, our county hospital is right next to the county prison. It's like across the street from our hospital uh, where the prison is. So a lot of the prisoners actually get referred to us when they get sick inside of uh, prison. They get re- the transferred to the hospital and they get treated with us. Or when there's any psychiatric issues, prisoner tries to attempt suicide. There's like severe mental illness that decompensates or is out of control. They get sent to us for treatment and stabilization. A, a few of my uh, patients that I'm treating as an outpatient psychiatrist just got released from prison. And they get out of jail after like a few years and they sort of walk into this world around them that's completely different because of coronavirus. They have basic needs and services that they can't find and they can't access. Um, And then it makes you wonder. It's like the entire system is stacked against these prisoners where they're not getting adequate care inside their prison. And then when they get out of prison, they're still not getting adequate care coverage uh, for what they need. So can you can you blame them for for either decompensating with their symptoms or falling back into legal jeopardy uh, because of whatever it is that they're uh, they're facing. So it's 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 tough. I I I I feel like the the coronavirus pandemic has affected every single person um, in every situation. There there isn't a single I, I guess status of person here in the United States that has impacted or affected and i guess you can say that it's a, it's a great equalizer in that sense that you no amount of money uh no amount of military protection no amount of wealth or privilege protects you from something like this you know, everyone's sort of vulnerable in the same way and the most vulnerable unfortunately are the ones who suffer the most you know so i mean that's that's an entire other discussion on the criminal justice system here um I don't know if you want to jump down that rabbit hole. Yeah, the 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 few prisoners that I have that I'm treating, I don't know. I I I don't know what the future holds for them, or how they're going to get along after this. You know, but that's a good point. I didn't expect you actually to ask about them. Thank you. Mark. Yeah, it's tough because, and as you mentioned, it's a great equalizer. I think earlier when, it, when this first started, a lot of millennials like myself were joking around how this could be the boomer remover. <laughs> no matter how rich you are, like the prime minister of the UK, Boris Johnson, was got infected. We've seen, yeah. and he's in intense, intense condition too. On top of that, yeah, he just got released today, or yes, last night apparently, and uh, they're saying that he's fine for now, but he's not going back to work. And we've seen Prince Charles also get affected in the UK, yeah. and like Trudeau's wife was infected as well. Mm-hmm. So it's everyone from all spectrums of mm-hmm. people are getting sick. And I'm sure with the stay-at-home orders, people social distancing, the threat of COVID-19 overall, and even the possibility of death. I'm sure it's had an impact on the mental health of individuals and even healthcare workers. Yeah, that, so, so this is the thing, like we, you know, from the mental health perspective, this is awful what, what is happening, um, you know, and, and I'm seeing it with, with a lot of my patients that I'm treating, we're seeing a surge in, in uh, depression and anxiety. Um, we're seeing a lot of patients who are decompensating uh, mentally one of the most difficult and heartbreaking things to deal with is when you have um, folks who come from broken homes, dysfunctional families, 
um, abusive families where you have domestic violence that's rampant in that home. And then you're telling this person that you need to self-isolate in this home, quarantine yourself in this home and lock yourself in with your abuser or with this dysfunctional family and then expect them to live harmoniously when everyone is on edge, everyone's anxious, everyone's fearful. Um, this is, I mean, it's a recipe for disaster. This is a recipe for that, that is, that is ripe for, um, abuse for, for, you know, what we're seeing right now. I'm seeing a lot of my patients, unfortunately, um, suffer from domestic violence, from elder abuse, from child abuse. We're seeing a lot of uh, an uptick in suicidality because people's, uh, people who rely on their social connections and social support. Uh, you know, to, to get through their, their mental health challenges don't have that support anymore. And, and a lot of my patients who rely on like Alcoholics Anonymous or rely on Narcotics Anonymous or rely on like group therapy meetings uh, and individual therapy face-to-face -face that need this, like they rely on this um, to keep themselves stable and move on, don't have it. They don't have access to that anymore. Um, you know, we're seeing a lot of uh, alcoholism. We're seeing a lot of substance abuse. And it's, it's truly heartbreaking that they normally would not have to suffer like this, but they are now. A lot of socioeconomic factors are also driving up uh, mental illness. Um, there are a lot of families who own family businesses, and those family businesses are now closing. They don't have means for supporting themselves and their family. A lot of people are losing their jobs. Um, the, the unemployment rate like, skyrocketed over the past like week or two. Um, and these people don't have jobs. And our government is dishing out, you know, a measly $1,200, but that doesn't mean you can't do anything with that. You know, the, the poverty here is so stark that this is like a drop in the bucket uh, for what people need. And now you're seeing a lot of financial anxiety for people who fear that I'm going to become homeless because I can't pay my rent or I can't feed my family. So we're going to starve. Um, I feel useless or hopeless or worthless because I can't, you know, work. I, I, there's no means of getting any money to support my family. So we're seeing a, a, a very deep-seated emotional and psychological vulnerability uh, for people. For some others, surprisingly, um, and this is going to sound weird, but for some folks, uh, self-isolation is actually one of the best things to happen. Um, and this is actually uh, a strange thing that some of my patients actually are enjoying um, the self-isolation. And, and these are the patients who suffer from, uh, you know, social anxiety, who suffer from schizophrenia or schizoaffective disorder, um, or who have psychotic based illnesses who really are shunned by friends and shunned by family, um, and don't like going out in public and don't like being seen. Um, so they tend to hide normally. They say to themselves, uh, they isolate normally. So now when this whole pandemic has hit, they're just continuing life as normal. You know, for them, there's no change. They they don't really socialize to begin with, and they don't go out to begin with. So they're actually not doing that bad. There's a few of my patients actually who have told me, you know, that that isolation has actually been great for my mental health because I'm focusing more on myself. I'm focusing more on my family. I'm going into hobbies and and pursuits that I never had time for uh, to do before. So it's it's a bit of a mixed bag, is what I'm seeing. I'm I'm seeing it hurt a lot of people. And I'm also seeing it help um, uh, a few others. Um, you know, that's from from the mental health perspective. This is sort of what I'm uh, what I'm seeing. But but overall, in general, 
I think it's, it's hurting more people than it seems to be helping. Um, especially when it comes to, to the socioeconomic aspect. In the third episode, I interviewed a friend of mine who runs a couple of retail locations and he was saying how uh, this is probably a bad time for all retail retailers mm-hmm. or small business owners in Canada. You know, he's also taking time for himself right now and spending time more time with his family now mm-hmm. that he's doesn't have much to do. And also mm-hmm. in Toronto, uh, the police services here uh, in the GTA released uh, crime stats and they said overall crime is generally uh, has seen a decrease. However, domestic violence calls have increased, unfortunately. So it's mm-hmm. tough out there. For those who do have mental illnesses, do you have any advice for them on how they can try and cope with all these changes that are happening? Yeah, oh, for sure. I, I think for a lot of people, uh, anxiety is something new to them. Or maybe some folks have always had like a low-key anxiousness. But now during this pandemic, their anxiety has sort of like exploded. Um, so I would point towards folks who have anxiety and would say that um, this is a very, very important time for you to focus on anti-anxiety techniques and coping mechanisms. Uh, what I recommend for a lot of my patients is if there was any time to sit at home, put on YouTube and start learning how to do yoga, how to do mindfulness, um, breathing techniques, uh, grounding techniques. You can type all this stuff into YouTube and learn it. You don't need to come see a doctor um, to learn this stuff. You, you actually have everything at your fingertips. Um, there's a bunch of apps you can download uh, that help you regulate your, your anxiety, your anxious thoughts. Um, there was one I recommended like a week ago. I'm forgetting. Um, but uh, for, for these folks, I would say that you need to keep your thoughts at a healthy um, uh, moderation where you don't uh, tilt towards one extreme of being uh, reckless and nonchalant about the virus, like not caring, doing whatever you want to do, going outside, socializing freely because it doesn't matter. And then avoid the other extreme of being um, illogically paranoid where you need to disinfect everything. You become OCD almost when it comes to cleanliness and purity, where you're constantly washing your hands, constantly disinfecting, where you're burning your skin off with the amount of times you're washing. I'm seeing a lot of that from people who don't normally have obsessive compulsive tendencies but are becoming obsessive compulsive because of this um extreme fear and paralysis of being infected um for folks who are suffering from depression um isolation can be very very difficult to deal with uh when you're depressed uh your your default mode in depression is to withdraw and not to socialize and not to connect with anyone and the more alone and isolated you are the worse your depressive thoughts become and, and the darker and darker your thoughts become, uh, it can lead towards suicidal thoughts, uh, thoughts of hurting yourself or thoughts of uh, ending your own life. Um, for folks who suffer from depression, um, there is a, I'm going to, I'm going to push and strongly encourage that social distancing and physical, uh, distancing does not mean emotional distancing. People are sort of misconstruing that just because I need to socially isolate from other people, it means that I emotionally and socially withdraw. And it's not the same thing. Um, people can socially isolate for sure, but this is the most critical time to now socially connect with other people, um, you know, through Skype, through Zoom, uh, through texting, through messaging, through WhatsApp, whatever it is that you use to communicate, this is what you should be utilizing more of now. So folks who suffer from depression, this is crucial, crucial, crucial 
to make sure that you you rely on telehealth services, connecting with uh, counselors, with therapists, if there are support groups and support webinars, uh, utilize this. I know that for a lot of your listeners, Amar, um, there's, uh, what is it, one eight six six 866 Nasiha. Um, and there's a lot of mental health organizations for Muslims in particular um, in, in Canada that you guys can rely on. Utilize these services. Reach out and connect with people. If you're suffering from depression or you feel your depressive symptoms um, worsening. For folks who have addiction uh, and substance use problems, this is a very, very difficult time in isolation. Uh, it sort of ramps up uh, alcohol use, marijuana use, cigarette smoking, uh, or, or vaping. Um, this is what I'm going to impress upon you guys, which is you've got to utilize this time right now to slowly cut back on your use. Um, otherwise, Ramadan is going to hit you hard when you begin fasting. You will begin to withdraw in Ramadan during the first week or the first week and a half um, when you completely cut out. Uh, whatever substance it is that you're using uh, when you begin to fast. And the same goes out actually to caffeine people. Caffeine fiends who drink like chug caffeine every single morning. Be careful. Now is the time to cut back on your caffeine use and reduce it so that you're not suffering during Ramadan when your body goes into caffeine withdrawals. Um, so for, for addiction, for substance use, that's my, my you know advice for you guys. Connect with substance use counselors. Connect with mental health professionals to help you get your addiction under control. Um, and then the last group of folks um, are those who I feel suffer from, you know, more rare mental illnesses like schizophrenia, you know, psychosis uh, and things like that. Um, it's the same advice that I would give for patients who suffer from depression, which is to make sure that you, you socially connect with uh, whatever support group you find is most helpful for you. Make sure that you reach out more to people, make sure that you communicate emotionally what you're feeling and what you're thinking and don't lock your emotions in. Um, you may be locked in your room or quarantining, but that does not mean that you are emotionally repressed uh, in any way. Make sure to express yourself um, in whatever way you feel most comfortable in uh, during this time. And of course, if anyone listening to this is in any danger of being harmed or harming yourself or harming someone else, um, if there's a very clear and present danger of something happening, dial 911 and get yourself to a psychiatric ER or dial uh, a mobile crisis unit to get yourself help. Um, I would rather have you survive and live through this epidemic than to hurt yourself or get hurt uh, doing something uh, while in isolation. Uh, so that was a super long answer, Amar. My apologies. Thank you so much. I think it's really helpful. People just want to know like what they can do themselves mm -hmm. to try and get better. And mm -hmm. I know I've tuned into some of your Instagram live sessions with Muslim Thrive. Can you speak more about what Thrive is doing right now? What you hope to accomplish with the live sessions that you're doing and the reactions you're getting from it? Oh, of course. Absolutely. So um, I am the vice president of uh, Muslims Thrive. It's a New York-based um, mental health, Muslim mental health organization. Uh, so what we do is, you know, we, we do mental health first aid trainings for um, Muslims all around New York, and uh, we put on mental health programming. Uh, it's very similar, actually, to um, what you guys have uh, with Nasiha up in uh, Canada, a uh, very similar uh, thing that we do here. And one of the things that we're currently doing, for anyone listening, you can, you can hit us up on Instagram. Our handle is at um, muslims.thrive, and it's a green logo like a little heart and green brain in the heart. Um, and every single day, every single weekday at 7 o'clock p.m. Eastern Standard Time, uh, we have an Instagram Live 
where we cover different topics and different, uh, you know, things. And we have a live Q&A with our listeners and we answer all of your questions related to mental health and mental wellness. Um, right now, um, I mean, we covered about three weeks worth, but we're going to continue it um, into this coming week. And of course, into Ramadan, we're going to continue it as well. Uh, anyone wants to tune in, you can hit us up at that handle on Instagram and then click the Instagram live on our logo at seven o'clock. And some of the topics that we tend to cover are, um, you know, anxiety coping mechanisms. We cover uh, depression and depressive symptoms and how to cope with that. We cover um, children's mental health, child adolescent mental health, and how to speak to your child or speak to your niece or nephew um, about this pandemic and about how to deal with their emotions during this time. Uh, we deal with uh, sleep schedules and people who are now like up all night, sleeping all day, and their entire sleep schedule is off. So insomnia, hypersomnia. Uh, we had a discussion on that. We have first responders here in New York that we bring on as guests uh, that we do interviews with on our Instagram live. Um, and whatever our viewers ask us about, uh, you know, we tend to answer and do our best uh, in responding to people's specific symptoms, you know, concerns about symptoms or concerns about family members, how to cope with being infected. If you are infected, how do you handle your mental health during this time? Or if you live with a family member who is infected or a family member who's hospitalized, how do you emotionally cope with that and deal with that? So these are a lot of the things that we're sort of touching upon with that. And for anyone listening, um, you know, I'd highly recommend, you know, check us out, um, you know, join us for a session. And if you can join for a session at seven o'clock, the Instagram live recording is up for the next 24 hours. Uh, so even if you miss it, you can always check it out um, and spread the word to whoever else you feel and your friends or family who might need a little bit of mental health support uh, on a daily basis. Thank you, Omar, for asking about that. I appreciate that, man. Actually, I tuned in a couple of uh, the past two sessions that you did. It was really helpful just learning about more what you guys are doing. Thank you for doing that. I really appreciate it. Do you have any predictions on COVID-19, you know, six months to a year from now? Let me peek into my doctor's crystal ball and see what's in our future. Uh, I don't know. I, I honestly don't know. I, I Part of me really hopes and feels that this will hopefully, inshallah, reach its plateau and then begin to like level off similar to South Korea's uh, current projection. I, I would hope that we have a similar projection uh, until South Korea is handling it. And you sort of see a plateau, you see it level off, then you see it sort of decline uh, and get under control from there. Um, that's what I would hope. And I would hope that that happens within, you know, the next few months or at least, you know, up until the end of summer or maybe fall. But truthfully speaking, you know, deep down, I, I have this worry and this concern that um, this virus is going to come in waves, uh, like first wave and second wave, similar to the, uh, the Spanish flu, where we're going to see a lot of people lower their guard um, when they see things plateau and, and they get receive news that like, oh, you know, the cases have leveled off or, you know, cases are starting to go down and you're going to see people relax all of their... Um, self-isolation uh, protocols and all the health protocols get relaxed. And when everyone starts going out again, doing everything again, I have this fear in me and I hope that this fear doesn't become founded, but I have this fear that you're going to see another spike, another wave of infections, um, you know, as people start to, to gather again and we become more complacent about this. I, I think that the best model to, to go after is the South Korean model where even after they had the virus under, under control, they still continued 
strict isolation rules and quarantine rules, even when the virus is under control, and they're reporting good news as opposed, as opposed to worsening news. I, I think vigilance is going to be very important. But what that means is that this is going to last much longer than what people think. I, I really, really feel that we're not going to see an end to this for quite some time. That's that's my gut telling me that that we we're only looking at you know the beginning phases of this, and this might last for hopefully not the rest of the year. I really hope not, but possibly for this year, which is it's scary. It's a scary thought. It's it's a not something people want to hear. We want things to go back to normal as soon as possible, but I don't think that's possible. Um, so no matter what, even even in Canada, if you start to hear good news, if they report good news. Um, mm -hmm. you know, still keep vigilant, keep guarded, make sure that you, you continue to follow all of your, your hygiene and public health, you know, safety regulations. I would actually even encourage, even after everything is said and done and things start to look better, continue to wear a mask. Um, you know, if, if need be, if you still have a warrior, if you still have elders in your home and you're hearing good news, it doesn't mean you're safe or protected. You know, you can still get infected even afterwards. Um, to so do be careful, be cautious, be vigilant. And yeah, we will all ride this out together until this thing finally gets under control. It's sobering to hear all that. That's my that's my gut. I, I like to be an optimist, but part of me feels mm -hmm. I really need to be realistic about this. And I don't think it's going away anytime soon. And mm -hmm. any advice for people on how to survive COVID nineteen? I mean, it's it's pretty much what you've been hearing from from everybody else. I'm gonna point my finger at WhatsApp aunties and point my finger at ridiculous uh, conspiracy theories because I feel like that these folks who are peddling all this stuff are not helping people survive. They're actually doing more harm than good. Um, I, I just, I do not for the life of me understand how some of my folks on Facebook believe that 5G Wi-Fi is causing the virus and this is a big plot by Bill Gates to vaccinate all of us and insert microchips to control us. It sounds crazy. These are the kind of thoughts where I would question someone's mental health and I'd be like, I think you need medication. WhatsApp aunties coming up with these random things of just, you know, shove these random like pills and take this random concoction of stuff and this will cure the virus or whatever. It's completely unfounded. You know, don't do this stuff. There are some other aunties that are like forwarding stuff around going like, make this dua before you go outside and you'll be protected against the virus. It doesn't work that way. None of, none of this works that way. So be very careful with where you consume information and who you consume information from. Um, that's my first tip for surviving this because stupid people will peddle stupid things and will get people hurt <clears throat> or worse, get people killed. So be very careful with this stuff. If someone forwards you something that is questionable or weird or just doesn't seem right, um, you know, pull that person aside and ask them where they got this from or what this thing is. Uh, trust um, your healthcare professionals um, and, you know, we're the ones who are fighting this thing. We're the ones who have, you know, pretty basic understanding of infectious disease and how it works and how to protect yourself. Um, don't go to your friend on WhatsApp or on Facebook for advice on this stuff. Um, and this is especially important for your family members, because I know a lot of us listening to this podcast probably have like uncles and aunties in our family or our own parents even who have received very weird advice about this virus and are doing the really weird things that may be harming themselves or putting like other family members in danger. Um, so if it comes down to it, you know, politely point out, you know, the best way to beat this virus is honestly to socially isolate yourself, wash your hands regularly, <clears throat> disinfect things that have come into contact with folks who may be infected or folks who look like they're sick. 
um, and wear proper protection when you're outside. You know, make sure to wear a mask. If you got to wear gloves and you're going to be handling a bunch of stuff at the supermarket, wear gloves when you're doing that. Uh, as long as you take your precautions, you should be okay. You should be all right. Um, just don't do stupid stuff like licking toilet seats or doorknobs or uh, drinking bleach or, you know, biting into Tide Pods or whatever else people are doing. Um, please don't do any of that. Thank you so much, Omar. Really appreciate the time you've given. And I will pray for your safety in case the WhatsApp aunties come after you now. And <laughs> I hope that you, your family, and all your friends in New York stay safe. And every and everything, hopefully, will get better in the next few months. I pray for that. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Absolutely. Omar, thank you so much, man, for allowing me to, you know, have chicken and dreams uh, with you. Um, this has been like such an awesome experience uh, being on this podcast. Hopefully, travel in the future, I'll have some good news for you uh, from here, um, and we'll get to enjoy uh, a chicken sandwich together, and then get uh, an ice cappy from Tim's afterward. Um, I promise you, when this is all over, I'm coming to New York. All right, we're gonna go to your favorite chicken joint. We're gonna eat from there, you and I. Oh my god, you're the man! For anyone listening to this, I know you guys are probably following Amar on this podcast, but if you don't follow Amar, on his, uh, his, his gram. Uh, this dude is one of the most prolific travelers that I know amongst my friends. And this dude is just, I don't know how this guy does not have his own like restaurant show at this point, going around the world, eating all these different foods and experiencing all these different things. Amar has the most amazing travel stories that you can imagine. Not only does he give you like a sense of like the local culture. He posts a lot of historical things, like a lot of historical facts, a lot of historical aspects of where he's traveling and what he's doing, all these different places that he goes to. Uh, it is amazing. And I, my heart goes out to you, dude. I really, really, my heart goes out to you, Omar, because your traveling has like come to a screeching halt because of all this. But I hope, inshallah, once this whole virus thing blows over, I get to see you travel again, get to like follow your stories. Uh, I miss that, actually, about your, your stories. Oh my, I'm in tears right now. You're so, thank you so much. No, really, I'm serious, man. Like, I, I live vicariously through you traveling. I'm like, nah, I wish I could go there, but I'll watch a Mars like vlog instead. Like, I'll get a, like a feel for what he's eating and doing over there, and all these fascinating places you go to. Right now, if you do a travel vlog, you'll probably just show me like your basement or your living room. But like, <laughs> I I miss that, man. So I hope until I get to see that again. And for anyone listening to this, follow my dude. Follow my dude. Um. What's your handle, Amar? I don't know it off the top of my head. It's Chicken and Dreams. Thank you. Follow this dude at Chicken and Dreams. And believe me, you will have your chicken in his dreams. <laughs> okay, Omar, thank you so much. I'll let you do it. Have a great day. You too. Take care, my man. Stay safe. So all those WhatsApp aunties out there, we're putting you on blast. If any of you know a WhatsApp auntie, please do send them this podcast to take a listen to. And for everyone else, I hope that the advice Omar has given really helps you out in any way possible. So please don't do anything stupid. Stay indoors if you have to. Continue washing your hands so that hopefully the future that Omar predicts doesn't turn out to be true. Thank you again, Omar, for coming on my podcast. Really appreciate it. And for everyone out there, please stay safe and stay tuned for my next episode where I'll be interviewing those that we didn't really consider essential workers. Those that work in retail on the front line, so to speak in Costco, Walmart, or the grocery stores. So you'll be hearing from their perspective as well. Till then, cheers.